The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can support the podcast. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. It's one of the most unusual and heartwarming wildlife stories ever documented. Back in the 1850s, a man named James Adams became a legend. He was a gentleman who was forced to leave civilization behind and journey deeper into the wilderness than any white man had ever been. And though he was alone and hungry, with little hope for his own survival, he risked his life to save an orphaned bear cub. You'll discover how this man and the bear cub, with no knowledge of the wilderness, face danger together, how they survive, and how the bear repays the man's kindness. You'll discover how he learns to live in harmony with the animals of the forest, how he becomes an important part of the wilderness, and how he protects and works with the animals in his valley. He was a special man with an incredible ability to make friends with wild animals. He was Grizzly Adams. In the mid-1970s, a low-budget, G-rated, independent film shot on 16mm took movie-going audiences by storm across Middle America, grossing some $24 million by 1977. If that doesn't sound like a lot today, adjusted for inflation, it is the equivalent of $392 million. From a technical standpoint, the film was of substandard quality, with an audio track clearly dubbed in its entirety after the fact. But the story and raw imagery of the national forests where it was filmed 
clearly captivated audiences and touched a nerve that was itching in the mid-1970s. The film spawned an NBC television series and a slew of imitators, all wanting to capitalize on the burgeoning back-to-nature movement of this decade. There's an entire backstory of how 1974's The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams and the subsequent TV series came to be. And this is that story. Wilderness films proved to be a popular genre in the 1970s. While theatrically released nature films featuring a loose narrative were not uncommon, it was likely 1972's Jeremiah Johnson that triggered a rash of scripted narrative films, heavy on photography that showcased the natural wilds of the continental United States. Filmed in Utah at the urging of star Robert Redford, Jeremiah Johnson depicted the title character taking up life away from civilization in the Rocky Mountains as a trapper. His struggle to survive through his first winter and his encounters with indigenous peoples and others as he builds a life for himself in the wild. His name was Jeremiah Johnson. They say he wanted to be a mountain man. Nobody knows whereabouts he come from and don't seem to matter much. He was a young man and ghosty stories about the tall hills didn't scare him none. Bought him a good horse and traps and other truck that went with being a mountain man and said goodbye to whatever life was down there below. This is his story. Robert Redford as Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah Johnson made his way into... Jeremiah Johnson was loosely based on a real 19th century mountain man known as Liver-Eating Johnson, which is its own story. When Warner Brothers was going to film it in Spain as they had done with the prior year's Man in the Wilderness, star Robert Redford urged them to shoot it on location in Utah instead in places like Zion National Park and the Wasatch Mountain Range. Art director Ted Hayworth was said to have driven 26,000 miles to scout filming locations all over Utah, and the production ended up using over 100 of them, one of which was Redford's own Sundance property northeast of Provo. Jeremiah Johnson had an estimated budget of $3.1 million and grossed some $22 million during its original domestic theatrical run. While Warner Brothers was enjoying success with their widely released relatively big-budget wilderness film, some independent studios that happened to be based in Utah were also finding success making these films on their own terms. There was... Cry of the Wild, Birth of a Legend, When the North Wind Blows, and yes, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. A film loosely based on the adventures of the real-world 19th century historical figure most commonly known as John Capon Adams, who alternately used the first name James, 1974's Grizzly Adams was shot on 16mm film in a quasi-nature documentary format with no on-location sound. Thus, the entirety of the film contained voiceovers so obviously done later in a studio that it is distracting. Star Dan Haggerty's voice was not heard at all in the film. It was entirely narrated by the highly recognizable William Woodson, 
If the audience didn't know his name, they might know it was the voice that narrated 1967's The Invaders on television. The film could also be watched almost in its entirety with the plot being inferred simply by observation. However, the film greatly benefited from the music of Tom Pace, who contributed the opening song, Wear the Sun in Your Heart, and the closing song, Maybe. Have no room for the life you're leading anymore. The film's story begins in the spring of 1853. James Adams is accused of a murder he did not commit, and leaving behind his young daughter in the care of her aunt, escapes into the wilderness to become a frontier woodsman. He adopts an orphaned grizzly bear cub after rescuing it from a mountain ledge and names it Ben Franklin. Adams finds he has a special, uncanny way with nearly all animals and befriends an injured indigenous man named Nakoma, who watches over him from then on. Adams picks a spot, builds a cabin, and settles there. Years pass, and his daughter Peg, now a young woman, seeks him out to tell him the real murderer was caught, and he was not a wanted man anymore. However, Adams had become too accustomed to solitary life in the wilderness, and would not return to civilization. After Peg leaves, and with his location now known, Adams abandons his cabin for adventures even deeper in the mountains. The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams was released November 13, 1974, and by May 1977 had grossed a reported $24 million. It played for over two years in theaters, mostly found in smaller towns in what some call flyover country. However, the film was largely ignored by Hollywood and film critics, and often isn't even included in box office lists in this era. But behind the scenes of this fantastically successful nature-oriented film that was about to spawn its own wilderness genre with several imitators and a television series was a shockingly sophisticated operation, based not in Hollywood, but in Utah, that was performing what they claimed was the most advanced audience research in the entertainment industry. The 1974 Grizzly Adams film we know was the product of producer Charles Cellier and Utah-based studio Sun Classic Pictures, who had just hired him. A studio run by Mormons and conservative Christians, Sun specialized in films that appealed to a movie-going audience they felt was overlooked by Hollywood. Their target audience were the so-called fringe moviegoers, people that took their families to the movies perhaps once a year. Cellier was just getting started with his obsession with market research, and the following year, while Grizzly Adams was playing in theaters, began working on a second wilderness film with Dan Haggerty, The Adventures of Frontier Fremont. Employing the same director and cinematographer as the Grizzly Adams film, but utilizing better production values, Fremont was a cinematic improvement, and we see the formula that would make up the Grizzly Adams series begin to gel. Fremont. Jacob Fremont, that was his name. He was the best mountain man I ever knew, and I guess I was the closest one to him outside of his critters. 
So I'm setting this down the best way I can in order that everybody will know just who he was and what he done. Because there won't never be nobody like him again. No, sir. Not like him. I have a dream. Presented as a narrative told by old mountaineer Big Bill Driggers, played by Denver Pyle, the film told the story of Jacob Fremont, a greenhorn tinsman from Ohio, who decides to leave civilization for a life in the mountain wilderness. Losing his canoe and all his supplies in a river, an injured Fremont wanders into a wolf den for shelter. Living with the wolves until his leg heals, he adopts a wolf pup that journeys with him to his mountain destination. Once there, he takes on a black bear cub whose mother had just been killed by a grizzly. Attempts at building a shelter fail until Driggers shows up and teaches him how to build a cabin proper-like. Fremont's affection for the animals of the mountain became known even to the indigenous people, who called him Wachashahe Waniope, man who helps the animals. Fremont makes an enemy of trappers, though, who set fire to the forest in retaliation. Instead of moving on, he swears to replant the mountain, and the closing scene shows an aged Fremont looking over what is again a green forest. The film was essentially Grizzly Adams with another name, although Haggerty would tell you how they differed. Fremont is a direct, gutsy man who knows what he is after. Adams was retreating from civilization and an unjust murder charge. Fremont is looking for adventure, a way to challenge himself. But the addition of humor, third-party narration, improved editing, a stronger storyline, not to mention the dynamic between Haggerty and Denver Pyle, were all most welcome additions. Other elements we would see in the later series made their debut here. Fremont planting a garden, songs that complement the story, regular visits to the cabin by old mountain man Driggers, friendly interactions with the local indigenous peoples, and the little critters tearing up the cabin when Fremont was gone. The film gives us views of Utah's Great Salt Desert and majestic Wasatch and Uinta Mountain ranges and was shot almost entirely out on location. However, weather forced some scenes to be completed on a makeshift soundstage in downtown Park City, Utah, which stood in for Fremont's cabin interior as well as the Wolf Den Cave. The Mountain Men of the Wasatch, a local muzzle-loading rifle club, was enlisted to aid the production as technical advisors. Not quite as successful as Grizzly Adams, Frontier Fremont still took in $5.5 million. While Sun Classic prepared yet another wilderness film for theaters, broadcast rights to the Grizzly Adams film was sold to NBC, who aired the 1974 film May 17, 1976, earning an incredible 43 share of the viewing audience. It was the highest-rated broadcast of the NBC Monday Night Movie since The Godfather had aired as a two-parter in November 1974, winning the weekly Nielsen ratings as well. Based on viewer interest in the Grizzly Adams broadcast, in mid-September, the network announced an upcoming 13-episode mid-season order for a series. 
This resulted in the highly unusual event of the governor of Utah publicly announcing the production of a TV series, noting, This is a giant step in the film industry for Utah, as this is the first major series to be filmed totally in our state. Yes, the 13-episode season was to be filmed entirely in Utah, at an estimated cost of production of $3.25 million, which would heavily impact Utah's economy, since 60% of the gross budget would be spent in-state. Dan Haggerty as Grizzly Adams and Don Shanks as Nakoma would reprise their film roles in the series, which would be modeled more after Frontier Fremont than the Grizzly Adams film. The role of Ben the Bear would again be primarily played by now 16-year-old female grizzly Bozo the Bear, owned by Lloyd Beebe, a cinematographer frequently used by Walt Disney Studios. The series introduces the character of Mad Jack, as played by Denver Pyle, and his cantankerous burrow, Number 7. Much like Big Bill Driggers, Mad Jack was an old, white-bearded, itinerant mountain man that would regularly travel through the mountains, bringing supplies from the settlement. Similar to the structure of Frontier Fremont, Mad Jack would narrate both the opening segment as well as the episodes framing the entire series as his later writings. Tom Pace's Maybe from the feature film would serve as the theme for the series, and Pace would continue to contribute original songs for episodes. A full-page ad was run in TV Guide, promoting the premiere of a new and different series, with different underlined. The movie beloved by millions from coast to coast, inspires a wonderful weekly series about James Grizzly Adams, who built a new life in the wilderness and became a friend to every living thing in it. Per the usual format, we'll look briefly at each episode, stopping at relevant behind-the-scenes tidbits and production notes, and later go into a full in-depth look at Charles Sellier, Sun Classic Pictures, and behind the scenes of the film and series. They call me Mad Jack. And if there's anybody in these mountains that knows the real story of James Adams, that'd be me. So I'm putting it down in writing just the way it happened in hopes of setting the record straight. Now, my friend Adams was accused of a crime he didn't commit. So he escaped into the mountains, leaving behind the only life that he ever knew. Now that wilderness out there ain't no place for a greenhorn, and his chances of surviving were mighty slim. Weren't no time at all for he was beaten down, ragged, and nearly stalled. Long about then he come upon a grizzly bear cub, all alone and helpless. Now Adams knew that little critter couldn't survive without his help, so he started right down that cliff, risking his own life to save it. <laughs> now that cub took to Adams right off. And that was when he discovered he had a special kind of way with animals. they just come right up to him like he was a natural part of the wilderness. But that bear cub, he was extra special. As he growed, he became the best friend Adams ever had. And together, they became a legend. Amen. there's a world where we don't have to run. Amen. 
Episode 1, Adam's Cub, aired February 9, 1977. A young girl named Eliza, traveling by wagon, gets separated from her parents when she unknowingly wanders off. Ben saves her from a mountain lion and takes her to Adam's, who takes her in, and she gives the cabin a thorough cleaning. But what will finding Eliza's parents mean for Adam's, who has a bounty on his head? Guest starring Henry Kendrick, Lucky Hayes, and introducing Kristen Curry as Eliza. As the practice of Sun Classic was to cast local talent when possible, Curry was almost certainly a girl locally cast in Utah. This was her first acting credit, and she continued to act in Sun Classic productions. Kendrick appeared on other TV of the era, such as Little House on the Prairie and Father Murphy. Episode written by the late Arthur Heinemann, an Emmy Award-winning writer known for three episodes of Star Trek, as well as Bonanza, Little House on the Prairie, and several ABC after-school specials. The episode aired opposite The Bionic Woman on ABC and Good Times and The Jacksons Variety Show on CBS. At 8, 7 Central, Grizzly Adams was NBC's lead-in show for Wednesday night taking the slot previously occupied by C.P.O. Sharkey and the ill-fated McLean Stevenson show, which were slid over to the 9 p.m. 8 central hour. The series premiere tied with ABC's Blansky's Beauties in 35th place in the Nielsen ratings for the week. This was one of the few episodes featuring a female guest character, and we'll talk about why later. Featuring the Tom Pace song, Friends, and the first time we see the character of Mad Jack, who introduces himself in the opening segment, and who regularly brings Adams needed supplies. The episode was reminiscent of the film, relatively slow-moving with lots of lengthy shots of wildlife and the countryside, setting the pace for the series. Episode 2, Blood Brothers. This is one of the very few episodes I found a network promo for. When Grizzly Adams saves Nakoma's life, it signals the beginning of a lifelong friendship, and the two blood brothers teach each other the secrets of survival in the wilderness. The life and times of Grizzly Adams, Wednesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain Time on NBC. Another young visitor to the Adams cabin arrives in the form of polite young Robbie Cartman from over yonder ridge. Adams recounts his story to Robbie, and thus the audience, filling in a lot of the time period when Ben was still a bear cub. We also get a new, slightly retconned version of Adams meeting Nakoma. Robbie would be a recurring visitor to Adams' cabin over the series. He was played by John Bishop in his first acting role. A local boy from Salt Lake City, he was a student at West High School and had the honor of being the most seen recurring guest character with seven appearances. Bishop is still a working actor and has been seen in Footloose, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, The Nanny, Grey's Anatomy, Lie to Me, Longmire, and about 60 other TV shows and films. Bishop is also a professional singer, songwriter, and guitarist. 
This episode essentially served as a retelling of the feature film, with minor differences. Comparing the two, Nakoma's encounter with a mountain lion was far less violent, Adam steals fresh meat for Nakoma from a wildcat and not an eagle, Adams is notably not wearing animal skins in the TV version, and when Adam's leg is pinned by a fallen pine tree and is freed by Ben, Nakoma assists in the TV version with a lever. Blood Brothers was the third episode filmed and could have served well as the series premiere, so I'm not sure why NBC decided to air it second. Perhaps the network thought viewers who saw the film might have thought it repetitive, so they went with a completely original story for the first episode. This episode was later released to VHS by Forum Home Video in 1989. Grizzly Adams' first two outings performed well in the ratings against its competition, earning a 31 share of the viewing audience. Episode 3, Fugitive Adams rescues a city fellow named Will Boker from a river and takes him back to the cabin. When he awakens, Will is very concerned about his carpet bag, which was washed away, and it is soon revealed his bag is full of money, and the marshal is after him. But is he really a criminal, or is there another explanation? Guest starring Ken Berry, known for F Troop, Mayberry RFD, and Mama's Family. Story by Hindi Brooks, a writer on The Waltons, Family, and Eight is Enough, featuring an original song by Tom Pace. This is the first time I clearly notice a stand-in bear used for Ben, as Bozo, the bear actor who played Ben, has a fairly distinctive appearance. During a filler scene, the stand-in bear stands up on its hind legs with its arms stretched out, interacting with the raccoon who proceeds to drop pine cones on its head. These stunts were accomplished through behavioral training that teaches the animal to perform an act and associate a food reward for doing so, with the sound of a buzzer, as explained by Dan Haggerty in a 1977 TV guide. That's how we got that great scene where a grizzly bear, not Bozo, stands up with his front paws on the edge of the roof of my cabin, and a raccoon drops a pine cone on his head. We made the bear reach up for some hidden meat on the roof, and the raccoon dropped the pine cone when his trainer pressed the buzzer. Five days after the airing of this episode, Dan Haggerty appeared on Battle of the Network Stars 2. Episode 4, Unwelcome Neighbor Greenhorn settlers move in across the gorge, and Adams meets Mr. Cartman and his son Robbie. Adams tries to advise Cartman about several mistakes he was making, which are rudely ignored, and Cartman has no interest in having anything to do with Nakoma. But soon, a hornet attack forces Cartman to seek both Adams and Nakoma's help. Guest starring Ronnie Cox and John Bishop returns as Robbie. The episodes were clearly shown out of production order, as this was the first one filmed, and the Robbie character is introduced. A voiceover line from Mad Jack was added at the beginning, explaining the episode as taking place in the early days of Adam's setting up life on the mountain. Four years later, it's possible that this episode inspired 14-year-old Rodney Duplichin to pack his body with river mud to survive. He had been riding a motorcycle with his uncle when they rammed into a concrete abutment and they were hurled into the cold, murky waters of the Vermilion River near their Lafayette home. 
Unable to crawl up the steep riverbank, Rodney shouted for help, but no one came. With a wind chill of 12 degrees, he told reporter Dick Donovan, I knew I had to do something, so I started scooping up mud and packing it around my hips and legs. I saw it done once when I was watching Grizzly Adams on TV. Then I packed my jacket with leaves to keep from losing my body heat. I learned that in the Boy Scouts. Although his uncle had been killed, Rodney was found the next morning alive. With the series performing well, this episode getting a 21 Nielsen rating and a 32 share, NBC insiders were already calling it a certain bet for renewal for the fall. Episode 5, Howdy Do, I'm Mad Jack. When Mad Jack is feared lost in a rafting accident, this serves as a framing device for yet another flashback story, as Adams reflects on how he came to meet Mad Jack and his stubborn mule, number 7. And it was a rough beginning. Here it is revealed that Mad Jack helped Adams build his first cabin, another departure from the film in this first of four episodes written by series writers Jim Carlson and Terrence McDonnell. The writing partners also collaborated on Battlestar Galactica, The Six Million Dollar Man, and the ABC Weekend Specials. Grizzly Adams' fondness for making and eating flapjacks also makes its debut here, which would be featured throughout the series. Episode 6, Adam's Ark A lawman named Pinkerton arrives to arrest Adams at the same time that Thunder Mountain, a volcano across the valley, has started to flow, trapping animals in the area. Adams must go free the animals, even if it means surrendering to Pinkerton afterward. Guest starring longtime TV actor Don Galloway, probably best known for his role as Detective Sergeant Ed Brown on Ironside. The first of three episodes written by the venerable Samuel A. Peoples, Western novelist and TV writer known for creating TV westerns The Tall Man, Custer, and Lancer, as well as his contributions to Star Trek, including the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before, which ended up selling the series to NBC. Featuring another original song by Tom Pace, who would contribute songs for over a dozen episodes of the series. Pinkerton refers to Mount Lassen in dialogue, and that it erupted last year. Located some 175 miles north-northwest of where the real Grizzly Adams cabin was located, I could find no modern reference to a mid-19th century eruption of Mount Lassen, part of the Cascade Mountain Range of Northern California. However, I did find old newspaper reports of volcanic activity in April of 1851, within 50 or so miles east-northeast of Lassen's Peak. Expedition members reported a column of fire 100 feet high, 20-pound stones being hurled high in the air, and nearby hot spring water so hot they could make coffee with it. What may have been a minor, localized steam explosion paled in comparison to how Lassen's Peak was active in the early 20th century. Lassen was active from 1914 to 1921, peaking on May 22nd, 1915, when a powerful explosion blew snow, rock, and ash 30,000 miles into the atmosphere. This was photographed in Red Bluff, California, some 70 miles away, 
and permanently changed the shape of the mountain. Dan Haggerty appeared later that night on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Episode 7, The Redemption of Ben Someone is setting animal traps in the area, and when Adams is setting a raccoon free, he is buried in a rock slide and thought dead. On his own, Ben wanders off and into Mitch Morgan's Traveling Animal Show, where he is chained and denied food. Escaping, Ben becomes a menace to the valley. Guest-starring Norman Fell, probably best known for his role of Mr. Roper on Three's Company, featuring another original song by Tom Pace. What's that, Ben? Mad Jack fell down a well? Yes, the early part of this episode was reminiscent of the old Lassie show, when Jack sent Ben to go get Adams. When Ben begins later terrorizing the valley due to hunger and mistreatment, a different, younger bear was clearly used for these scenes. Oddly, this story as well was framed as a flashback, although not necessary to the storyline or continuity of the series. Terence McDonnell relates that the story was inspired by Androcles and the Lion, a 1912 play by George Bernard Shaw. Episode 8, The Tenderfoot Another greenhorn arrives in the mountains in the form of a young man from back east. He tags along with Mad Jack, to his great annoyance, to Adam's cabin where he introduces himself as Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore is out to experience the wilderness of America he only previously has known from books. Charles Martin Smith guest stars as Teddy Roosevelt. You may remember him as Terry the Toad from the American Graffiti films or his roles on Never Cry Wolf or Starman. Theodore Roosevelt served as the 26th President of the United States from 1901 to 1909. A sickly child suffering from repeated fevers, colds, gastroenteritis, and asthma, he took up taxidermy as a young boy, as well as vigorous exercise at age 12. At age 26, while serving in the New York State Legislature, he lost first his mother, then his pregnant wife, in death on the same day. Taking leave of his position, he left for the Badlands of North Dakota, where he had purchased some land to become a real-life cowboy. It is perhaps this era of his life that writer Sam Peoples was trying to depict. However, the episode presents some timeline inaccuracies if we presume the series takes place in the early to mid-1850s, as Theodore Roosevelt wasn't born until 1858. The show references a writer named Leffingwell several times. William Bruce Leffingwell, author of a number of books on hunting, fishing, and the outdoors, was born in 1850, and his books would not begin to be published until the late 1880s. Episode 9, The Rivals The Adams Cabin gets a rare female visitor in the form of Sumi, a young indigenous woman educated by the state school system as a teacher, being escorted by Mad Jack back to the Crow Village. But on the way, Mad Jack discovers gold in the stream in the bottom of nearby Stone Canyon, which threatens to change the way of life in the mountains once he stakes his claim. However, Sumi's attention to Mad Jack's weary feet instigates a foot race between him and Nakoma. 
Betty Ann Carr guest stars as Sumi. She later appeared in Sons Hangar 18 and had a recurring role as policewoman Betty on T.J. Hooker. It is revealed Adams knew Sumi as a young girl, and she was away for eight years at school, which would seem to indicate Adams has been living in the mountains for several years at this point. Featuring another original song by Tom Pace. The second episode written by Lawrence Dobkin, known primarily as a prolific actor, but he also directed episodes of over 80 television series, such as Star Trek, Canon, The Waltons, and many more. This episode kicked off Sharon Miller's directing career. During my conversation with her, she recalled that it started shooting on winter solstice, December 21, 1976, outside Park City, Utah. The shortest day of the year, and I had all exterior scenes but one. Got all the exteriors done before it got dark, then went into the cabin to shoot the scene with Dan eating dinner with the bear. That day was a real challenge for my first professional directing job, but I did it. Together, we determined that this episode was shot both at the Utah filming location outside Park City and near Payson, Arizona. Weather in late December had forced the production to move locations during filming. She specifically recalled the race between Mad Jack and Nakoma being filmed in Arizona. Episode 10, The Unholy Beast Jack arrives at Adam's cabin reporting the sighting of a four-legged monster. Adams is incredulous, but when Nakoma reports Grey Wind, a tracker from his tribe, is seeking to kill it, he takes it more seriously. Adams identifies the strange beast as a camel, something none of them had seen before. Slim Pickens and George Aguilar guest star, as does High Jolly the Camel, featuring another original song by Tom Pace. In the story, High Jolly had been part of the U.S. Camel Corps, a mid-19th century experiment by the United States Army, where they used camels as pack animals in the Southwest, from Texas to California. High Jolly was named after a real historical person who received an unfortunate, westernized version of his Arabic name. Haj Ali was a 19th century Turkish camel breeder and trainer, one of eight men brought to Texas by the Army for the U.S. Camel Corps. With the Civil War preoccupying the nation, the Camel Corps project was abandoned, and most of the animals were auctioned off in Benicia, California, and Camp Verde, Texas, with some being purchased by the Ringling Brothers Circus. However, some were released into the wild, and feral camels roamed the scrub desert of Texas into the early 20th century. The grave of Haj Ali, marked by a large rock pyramid with a metal silhouette of a camel atop it, can be seen in Quartzsite, Arizona. Episode 11, Beaver Dam It's one crisis after another as Grizzly Adams must first deal with a wildfire caused by a lightning storm, then displaced beavers dam up the stream by the cabin, threatening to turn Adams' homestead into a lake. Meanwhile, Ben has to deal with Adam's new friends, Daniel and Mary Lou, a pair of skunks. This was the second episode filmed and the fourth written by story editor Paul Hunter. 
featuring another original song by Tom Pace, and the closing scene features a completely different rendition of Maybe that was unique to the series. We also clearly see second and third unit bears in this one. Episode 12, Home of the Hawk. Greenhorn settlers travel through the area in the form of a middle-aged man named Metcalf and his young adult daughter, Deborah. Getting stuck in the river, the wagon falls back and traps Metcalf, who is rescued by Adams. Staying with Adams while Metcalf recovers from his injury, Deborah is fascinated with Adams' life, and especially an injured hawk he has been caring for. Guest starring Jack Crustian as the dour, Bible-quoting Metcalf, and Margaret Wilcock as Deborah. Crustian was a prolific character actor with a 50-year career in film and TV. In his later years, you might remember him as Papa Papadopoulos on Webster. Written by Jerry Day and Jane McKenzie, Day was known for Wagon Train, Laredo, and Little House on the Prairie. Episode 13, The Storm It's wintertime, Adams Mountain is covered with snow, and Mad Jack and Adams are preparing food for their annual celebrating feast. When local tribal woman Natechewan arrives distraught that her young daughter Talitha is missing, first Adams, then Nakoma go out looking for her in a blizzard. But they find that a local legend of a monster grizzly named Moloch may be terrifyingly real. Guest starring Lois Red Elk and Lori Sutton. Red Elk played indigenous characters on productions like How the West Was Won and Lakota Woman. This season one finale was written by Preston Wood, a writer for Gunsmoke, Bonanza, and Little House on the Prairie, featuring another original song by Tom Pace. We see snow for the first time in the series, and there was a reason it was rarely seen, which we will talk about. They also seem to oddly go out of their way to not use the term Christmas when referring to their annual winter feast, a stark contrast to the other two holiday episodes of Season 2. Footnote, commonly published air dates online for the last two episodes are incorrect. The prior episode, Home of the Hawk, aired on Wednesday, May 4th. The Storm aired the following week on May 11th. Grizzly Adams then went into summer reruns the following week. The half-season run was a success, with NBC ordering a full season for the fall. ABC's The Bionic Woman fell from the number 5 show on television to number 14 for the 1976-77 TV season while Good Times fell two places to number 26. Grizzly Adams placed 35th in the Top 40 series, a respectable showing for Wednesday night, and was overall NBC's fifth highest-rated show. Unsurprisingly, a massive merchandising campaign went into the works for products to hit stores for the holiday season. NBC 77, the year of the big events, the super specials. And the events will be even bigger in 78. Hey, some nights are gonna be special. Some nights are gonna be rare.
Season 2, Episode 1, Hot Air Hero. Grizzly Adams returned for a full season on September 28th with a slightly revised opening with a new voiceover by Denver Pyle. It's very similar, so I'm not replaying the opening here. I'm not sure why they changed it. The voiceover take used in Season 1 was clearly superior. For this season premiere, we have a network promo. On Grizzly Adams, an unidentified bag of hot air brings an unexpected visitor. One of you savage. Then, Rooster Cogburn, John Wayne, and Catherine Hepburn together. Being around you pleases me. You will be careful, won't you, Wilkin? They could take it and dish it out. God help us! Here he does, I'll give him drinking! Grizzly Adams, then John Wayne as Rooster Cogburn, Wednesday, starting at 8, 7 Central and Mountain. Mad Jack is up in arms, ranting about seeing a man from the moon come down out of the sky. When our trio goes out to investigate, Jack shoots at the mysterious object, which promptly sinks out of the sky onto Adam's cabin. And we meet Frenchman André Girard, his French lop rabbit Louis, and his hydrogen balloon. Guest-starring Chicago native Gino Conforti. No, he wasn't French, but he was a working actor with about 100 film and TV credits in addition to stage and commercial work over his 40-year career. Written by E. Jack Kaplan, later a supervising producer on Designing Women. Here, the show returned on Wednesdays at 8, 7 Central against Good Times and Busting Loose on CBS. And the return of Eight is Enough beginning its full season on ABC. Eight is Enough would prove to be a significant competitor for the Wednesday night lead-in time slot, featuring another original song by Tom Pace. In the story, our characters temporarily convert Gerard's balloon to hot air so he can make it to the next hydrogen way station. Balloons that carried passengers had been in use since 1783, when the first hot air balloons were developed by the Montgolfier brothers in southeast France. Others began to use hydrogen in their balloons instead of hot air. Although hydrogen was fairly easily produced, it was quite flammable, leading to the deaths of two early aeronauts in 1785. The first balloon flight in North America was observed by George Washington in 1793, and balloons were used for spying and communication in the U.S. Civil War. Despite the danger, hydrogen was the gas of choice for ballooning until the mid-20th century when modern burners were developed as an onboard hot air source. Of course, the use of hydrogen fueling lighter-than-air travel methods is forever linked to the Hindenburg disaster of 1937. Episode 2, Survival. Grizzly Adams' life is in danger when he's injured in a fall and loses his memory. No, I... He fears the animals as he wanders the wilderness unaware he's being stalked by a hungry cougar and Sam Steele, bounty hunter. Grizzly Adams, Wednesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain Time, right before Headliners with David Frost. Robbie brings a sick deer fawn to Adams for help. When Adams goes out to collect medicinal herbs, he trips and hits his head, causing amnesia. Meanwhile, a bounty hunter named Sam Steele is in the area looking for him. Ken Nakoma and Jack find Adams before Steele does. Guest starring James Wainwright, you might remember him from the podcast on Beyond Westworld. 
and John Bishop returns as Robbie. Written by Peter Germano, known for westerns and sci-fi such as Cheyenne, Wagon Train, The Time Tunnel, and was one of the group of writers that adapted Japan's Gachaman into Battle of the Planets for U.S. syndication, featuring two original songs by Tom Pace. The original script title for this episode was Adam's Amnesia. Episode 3, A Bear's Life. Adams, Mad Jack, Ben, Number 7, and the Animal Friends are all holed up in the cabin overnight during a downpour. The next day, the roof needs repairs, but Ben wanders off to have his own adventures involving a black bear cub, an old medicine man, and a pair of greenhorn settlers. Guest starring Chief Eugene Standing Bear as the old medicine man. This is the first IMDb credit for the then 70-year-old Standing Bear and Ogala Sioux, who was pleased to sing an authentic Lakota song during his scenes. However, he was somewhat embarrassed at the costume provided for him, saying it made me feel like an Indian clown. The following year, he appeared on popular miniseries The Chisholms. However, he had previously appeared in a film over 50 years earlier, in the 1925 Paramount silent film, The Pony Express, directed by James Cruz, himself a Utah native said to be of Ute descent. Standing Bear, then 19 years old, visiting Cheyenne Frontier Days in Wyoming, volunteered for a fight scene in the film. Standing Bear reported that actor Wallace Beery choked him a bit too hard and threw him down onto the stunt mattress, where he hit his head on the ground instead of the mattress. Later that same day, he doubled for Hawaiian actor Duke Kahanamaku, who did not know how to ride a horse. Standing Bear's horse was startled by the blanks being fired and galloped off at full speed and stumbling on a hole in the ground, throwing him off the second injury in one day. This is the second of two episodes written by Paul W. Cooper, an Emmy Award-winning writer known for Little House on the Prairie, Father Murphy, Highway to Heaven, and the ABC After School specials, among others. Episode 4, The Trial When a young tribal boy named Tumakwa loses his string of fish to an otter, he steals someone else's basket of fish, and a hungry Ben gets blamed for it. The tribal chief then puts Ben on trial for his crime. Guest starring John War Eagle in one of his final roles. A Yankton Sioux, he appeared on film and TV for some 45 years. A boy named Frank L. Martinez was Timaqua, and every single line of his was dubbed in post-production by a female voice. Martinez was likely a locally cast youth and has no other acting credits. Tamaqua speaks English for the benefit of the viewer, with Mad Jack explaining in narration that he had learned English at the settlement. Written by David O'Malley, writer of The Adventures of Frontier Fremont, featuring an original song by Tom Pace. Episode 5, The Orphans Michelle and Eugene, a pair of wandering orphans, are taken in by Adams and Mad Jack, but they soon leave when they fear Adams will take them back to the orphanage. When the orphanage director comes looking for them, Adams talks him into letting the children have pets, and they change their minds about going back. 
guest starring prolific character actor James Griffith, who had nearly a 40-year career in film and TV. The orphans were played by Jody Jetton and Tiger Thompson. Thompson went on to act in several Sun productions, including playing a 12-year-old Jesus in In Search of Historic Jesus, as well as appearing in the miniseries Centennial and the 1979 film Over the Edge. Showing that Dan Haggerty as Grizzly Adams had now been cemented in pop culture, later that night, he was the man of the hour on the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast. Two days following this episode, Haggerty appeared on Battle of the Network Stars 3. Episode 6, The Search When the infamous Trapper Tom comes to the mountain to snare grizzlies for city zoos, our trio sets out to find him and destroy his traps to protect Adam's animal friends, including an injured mountain lion with a missing cub. Guest-starring character actor Paul Brenniger, probably best remembered as Wishbone from Rawhide. Written by Leonard B. Kaufman and Malvin Wald. We've come across Kaufman's name on Time Express and Beyond Westworld. Wald was an award-winning writer credited with nine season two episodes and was known for The Naked City, Dactari, as well as Sun Projects, such as 1979's In Search of Historic Jesus. Episode 7, Gold is Where You Find It. An inept pair of greenhorns, one in a derby and the other one in a familiar-looking cavalry hat with an upturned brim, show up on the mountain with a fake treasure map in search of gold. Adams makes the pair consider giving up gold-colored dreams in favor of hard work, in this episode played purely for laughs. Guest starring Forrest Tucker and Larry Storch. Both prolific actors were well-known for the late 1960s Western sitcom F Troop. Larry Storch died July 8th of this year at age 99. This was the first of four episodes written by Dick Conway, known for an extensive credit list that includes The Life of Riley, Leave it to Beaver, and Petticoat Junction. Four days before the airing of this episode, Dan Haggerty suffered serious burns at his own 36th birthday party. Someone at the crowded party evidently bumped into him when he was about to drink a flaming shot of rum, and the burning alcohol caught his beard on fire and subsequently splashed onto his arms and hands. After Haggerty fell to the floor to initially try to put out the flames himself, Bartender Jimmy Camuso jumped over the bar and smothered the fire. Haggerty suffered burns to his wrist, forearms, and hands, and to a lesser extent, his neck and face. Skin grafts were needed, and production had to be shut down while he was treated. He was released from the hospital after three weeks of treatment. Fortunately, filming had been completed on all but a few Season 2 episodes, and the production was about to go on holiday hiatus until mid-January. Episode 8, Track of the Cougar Nakoma has war paint on, seeking a cougar who attacked his village. But Adams realizes the cougar is Sakota, who he raised from a cub. Adams and Nakoma track Sakota, but what will happen when they find her? The plot resembles elements from the 1971 Sun film, Toklat.
The first of two episodes written by Worley Thorne, a writer on The Paper Chase, Fantasy Island, and the infamous first season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Justice. I'm with Starfleet. We don't lie. This was the last episode by director Sharon Miller and her favorite out of her four installments. Episode 9, The Choice. Robbie is back with Ginger, the deer rescued last spring. Ginger, now a yearling sprouting small antlers, is old enough to be released. But Robbie has a hard time letting him go. Meanwhile, Mad Jack and Nakoma seek to corral a wild burrow as a gift for the tribal chief. John Bishop returns as Robbie, and Tom Pace returns with another original song. The original script title was Letting Go. For continuity with the story of Ginger the Deer, director Sharon Miller was brought back to helm this episode. Episode 10, Woman in the Wilderness. Hey, Adams, there's trouble on the mountain. Wednesday, Grizzly Adams meets an unusual bounty hunter. All right, Bear. And the bounty she's hunting is Bear. Dan Haggerty stars in Grizzly Adams and Thursday on Chips. Out. John and Punch can survive the freeways, but poison food in a clogged road puts a baby's life in their hands as they desperately race to the hospital. Grizzly Adams Wednesday and Chips Thursday, both at 8, 7 Central and Mountain on NBC. Adams and Mad Jack come across a rarity, a woman traveling alone on the mountain. Kate Larson is supposedly writing a book about black bears and is tracking one in particular. But what are her real motives? Meanwhile, Nakoma trains young Totani, facing his wilderness test to become a brave. Guest starring Tiffany Bolling as Kate and Todd Tingey as Totani. Bolling had a lead role in Rod Serling's The New People in 1969 and had been Spider Lady on Saturday mornings Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, and she was in a string of 1970s B-movies. Tingi was a 16-year-old boy from Bountiful, a full-blooded Cherokee by the name of Running Bear. He was adopted by white parents and raised in Bountiful, Utah. During filming, he was quoted by the Albuquerque Tribune. They came to the Indian Center one day, and I asked for an audition. The work is smooth. Learning the lines is the hardest part. However, he tells me he was misquoted. Through the Indian Center, he had already been working as a film extra. Then his mother got him recognized by Charles Sellier, and he was given a private audition at Sun's Park City offices. He got the part of Totani and had two weeks to prepare. He was then flown out to Rudoso, New Mexico on a Learjet for filming. An interesting production note, when Nakoma and Totani are alone, they speak English to each other for the benefit of the viewer. This is one of only two episodes where we hear Don Shanks as Nakoma speak English during the series. Episode 11, The Spoilers. Animals are mysteriously falling sick, and the fish in Hoodal Creek are dying off. It turns out Hardluck Harry and a greenhorn are panning for silver upriver and using metal testing chemicals, which our human trio need to deal with. Meanwhile, Ben becomes a mother to a newly hatched gosling. This first episode of 1978 guest stars Ken Lynch and Walter Wonderman. Lynch first made his mark on radio, then moved to TV where he seemed born to play a cop 
private eye, or military officer, and he played quite a few over his 30-year acting career. Episode 12, Marvin the Magnificent. Yet another visitor makes his way to the mountain, traveling magician Marvin the Magnificent, who has his own black bear named Babe, and they put on a magic show for our trio. However, Marvin is aging, and so is Babe, and these facts are hard to face. Guest starring Edward Andrews, a familiar face to anyone who grew up watching 60s and 70s TV, you might remember him from his final role as banker Mr. Corbin in 1984's Gremlins. The first of five episodes written by Jack Jacobs, known for police and military dramas such as The Silent Service, M-Squad, and family adventure series Dactari. Jacobs often collaborated with writing partner Malvin Wald, as they did on Jacobs' four remaining Grizzly Adams episodes. Episode 13, A Time of Thirsting Adams' wilderness is in the middle of a serious drought, and his stream and even the nearby lake has dried up, threatening all area wildlife. In this worst of possible times, a wildfire breaks out. This was the first of four episodes written by Brian Russell, a writer on Sun's Greatest Heroes of the Bible. Episode 14, The Seekers Mad Jack is up in arms, having spotted someone on horseback he calls Maurice the Monster. But it's a case of mistaken identity, and it's a retired army sergeant named Mongo searching for a property he supposedly bought back at the settlement. But all this has to wait as Robbie has gone and gotten himself trapped on a rocky ledge. Guest-starring legendary actor Keenan Wynn. This episode was released as a Viewmaster set. This means a photographer was on location during filming with a special two-lensed camera to take stereophonic photos to adapt the story into Viewmaster format. This audience is likely familiar with the toy stereoscopic viewer that enabled you to see 3D film images when you looked into it, one still image at a time, advanced with a click lever. Viewmaster was introduced at the 1939 World's Fair and was first marketed to adults as an alternative to scenic postcards, and packets were typically sold at scenic attraction gift shops. There were hundreds of titles released. There was a Viewmaster packet for every national park and virtually every major attraction in the U.S. And through the World Travel Series, you could tour the world via Viewmaster. In the 1950s, the brand acquired the license to Walt Disney Properties. In the 1960s, the content released for Viewmaster started to feature topics with more appeal to children. Television series were featured on Viewmaster discs under their Showtime series. And in the 1970s, reels were released for about 40 TV properties, such as The Brady Bunch, Buck Rogers, Chips, Happy Days, Search, and Space 1999. Episode 15, A Gentleman Tinker When Mad Jack spots a short-statured Irishman, he's convinced he's seen a real-life leprechaun. But Patrick McGinty is just a traveling tinker who soon finds his way to Adam's cabin. Meanwhile, Nakoma is looking for Little Long Ears, the burrow of the tribal chief that has run off. Guest-starring recognizable Irish-American actor Walter Burke in one of his final roles. 
A tinker or tinkerer was a tinsmith, a typically itinerant metal worker who fashioned or mended household utensils. As depicted in the episode, the term came to be associated with Irish and Scottish Highland travelers. Episode 16, The Runaway Isaac, a runaway slave, makes his way to Adam's mountain. Adams, of course, helps the man, feeding him and freeing him from his shackles. This puts Adams at risk when Isaac's master comes looking for him. Meanwhile, Mad Jack's endless complaining about his lumbago prompts Adams and Nakoma to build him a sweat lodge. Guest starring Roger E. Mosley and Cooper Huckabee. Two years later, Mosley would be cast as TC on Magnum P.I., Huckabee is a character actor who started on Little House on the Prairie in 1976 and is still working today. This episode had a pat ending, which is to be expected for a series drama from this period, but the Tom Pace lyrics take on extra meaning at the conclusion of this story. Two days prior to this episode, Dan Haggerty took home the favorite male performer in a new TV program award on the 1978 People's Choice Awards. Episode 17, The Great Burrow Race Mad Jack's old friends Gus and Gertie arrive at Adam's cabin, which spurs old rivalries resulting in a burrow race between Number 7 and Wilbur. Guest starring well-known actors Jack Elam and Fran Ryan. The body of water clearly shown early in the episode appears to be Bonito Lake, as the production was filming in the Rudoso, New Mexico area by this time. Episode 18, The Littlest Greenhorn Mad Jack spots another strange animal in the forest, this time a chimpanzee named Sally, owned by newcomer Captain Morgan from Boston. Morgan is fixated on converting his wagon into a boat to ferry passengers across the lake. Guest starring longtime actor Henry Beckman, Benito Lake is again clearly shown throughout the episode and in the closing shot, featuring an original song by Tom Pace. Footnote, although online episode guides typically show this as airing on March 15th, this episode actually aired on February 8th, and A Gentleman Tinker aired on March 15th. Episode 19, The Renewal. It's Good Friday, and Adams, Mad Jack, and Robbie are out looking for honey to make honey cakes for Easter. They run into newcomers traveling through the mountains, Brad and his young son Andy, left behind from a wagon train when Andy fell ill. Meanwhile, Watani, new chief of the Kutenai, seeks Adams' help to heal a wild hawk that holds spiritual significance to their tribe. Grizzly Adams explains the meaning of Easter to the Kutenai, and Brad must decide what life is best for Andy. Guest starring Patrick Wayne, son of actor John Wayne, Ned Romero, Rudy Ramos, Brian Erickson, and featuring the last appearance of John Bishop as Robbie. 11-year-old Brian Erickson was a local boy from Ogden, Utah. A special Easter presentation, this 90-minute episode ranked a respectable number 22 out of 65 shows that week. The episode is oddly padded with clips from Hot Air Hero, the first episode of the season, leading me to think it was going to be a clip show, yet this is done only once. 
The production number suggests that this was the second-to-last episode filmed in the series. This episode was later released on home video in the 1980s, although the legitimacy of this particular release is questionable. In 2014, it was released as a standalone DVD. Episode 20, The Stranger Another newcomer arrives to the mountain, one Captain Ulysses Grant of the Army, ostensibly conducting a survey to write a book on wilderness survival. But he seems to be hiding something from Adams and Jack. Meanwhile, Nakoma continues teaching Totani the ways of being a brave, as they see two wildcat cubs to their home. Guest starring Mark Slade as Ulysses S. Grant, and Todd Tingey returns as Totani. As in Woman in the Wilderness, Nakoma and Totani speak English for the benefit of the viewer. This episode was filmed the first week of October 1977. The production had to work around Dan Haggerty's availability for filming, as he had been in a motorcycle accident in Rudoso. Second Unit Director Don Kiesler had to shoot around him, filming scenes with Nakoma and Totani, as well as Mad Jack and Ulysses Grant, while Haggerty healed. Being a motorcycle enthusiast, this would not be the only time a motorcycling accident would touch Haggerty's life. Historical note, Ulysses S. Grant was indeed a captain in the U.S. Army's 4th Infantry from August 1953 to July 1854. Lining up with the real dates, John Grizzly Adams was in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. He even served at Fort Humboldt, California during this time as quartermaster, managing supplies of food, ammunition, and equipment for the fort and its outposts. However, the ending of the episode indicating he had been promoted to major is somewhat inaccurate, as there was a seven-year gap in his military service immediately following this period, before he again served during the Rebellion of the Seceding States in 1861. Of course, he later served as the 18th President of the United States from 1869 to 1877. Episode 21, The Quest Two men, one Elmer Bludgett from the newly formed Department of the Interior and the Army Corporal accompanying him, arrive to survey the wilderness and the types of animals found therein. Initially hostile to wildlife he views as predators, Adams teaches Bludgett respect for all animal life and inspires him to propose to the government a system of national parks where all wildlife will be protected. Guest starring Royce D. Applegate and John D. Carson. Applegate would later be known as Chief Manilow Crocker, part of the Sequest crew. Carson used to provide the voice of Dino Boy on Space Ghost and later had a stint on Falcon Crest. And yes, the plot is extremely similar to the last episode, where Adams convinced Ulysses Grant he didn't need to kill animals for food. Here, Adams teaches Bludgett that even animal predators deserved conservation, and thus inspires the national park system. About 20 years after the real Grizzly Adams was in the middle of his wilderness exploits, Congress established Yellowstone as the first national park in 1872. This was the first of the final four produced episodes where the filming had moved to the Payson, Arizona area due to the coming seasonal winter weather at Benito Lake. 
Grizzly Adams' outfit becomes more stylish. He now sports what appears to be a Native American choker necklace and a sash tied around his now untucked white shirt with puffy sleeves. There was almost certainly a real-world production reason for this costume change, as the final four episodes were filmed following Dan Haggerty's burn injuries experienced just two months earlier. More on Grizzly Adams' wardrobe in Behind the Scenes. Episode 22, The Sky Rider Mad Jack spots yet another odd stranger in the area with an unusual contraption, which he runs off to report to Adams. The stranger is one Milton Wright, testing a design for a glider that he intends to launch off a cliff with himself as Ryder. With the help of Adams' hawk friend, Wright makes improvements to his design. Guest starring Russ Tamblin, a child actor that made his debut in 1948's The Boy with Green Hair alongside Dean Stockwell. Ten years later, he was cast in the title role in 1958's Tom Thumb, which fit his gymnast and tumbling background. This led to a 70-year career of film and TV. Here, the show moves to Friday nights for the final two episodes broadcast in the 1977-78 season. Historical note, Milton Wright was the father of Wilbur and Orville Wright, the fathers of modern aviation. But I found no evidence he was involved in aviation experimentation. During the era presented on the show, Wright was a traveling pastor that spoke out for women's rights, the abolition of slavery, and the opposition to secret societies, such as Freemasonry. Returning from one of his travels, he brought sons Wilbur and Orville a toy rubber band helicopter made of bamboo, cork, and paper. The toy helicopter is said to be responsible for triggering the Wright brothers' interest in aviation. The landscape in this one looks quite different from prior installments, and it was clear they were no longer at the Bonito Lake, New Mexico location. Episode 23, The World's Greatest Bounty Hunter With Mad Jack's birthday celebration at Adam's cabin pending, a fever he caught at the settlement causes delirium, and he takes on the persona of a bounty hunter in search of a particular wanted man. Now just don't that beat all. Meanwhile, Ben has brought a black bear cub back to the cabin. This final episode that aired during the regular 1977-78 TV season was written by Dick Conway, based on a story by Conway, Carl Jamison, and Lee Francis. But those last two names are pseudonyms. Jamison and Francis were really series writers Jim Carlson and Terrence McDonnell. This is the only instance where they had their names removed from an episode of the series. A chat with McDonnell revealed why. The story had been sold to the producers during the first season, and Carlson and McDonnell were given notes and revised the script accordingly. They never heard back from the producers, and the season ended. Months later, during the second season, they heard from the Writers Guild to clarify how they should be credited for the episode. Reading the script, having been rewritten by Dick Conway, Carlson and McDonald didn't care for the complete change of tone and broad, cartoonish comedy inserted into the story, so they opted to use the pseudonyms. Following this episode, 
NBC announced the series cancellation on May 15, 1978, along with Policewoman, CPO Sharkey, James at 16, What Really Happened to the Class of 65, and The Bionic Woman. Those cancellations don't count a dozen more made earlier in the season. NBC revealed an almost entirely new schedule for fall 1978, leaving only Little House on the Prairie, The Rockford Files, and The Wonderful World of Disney in their respective time slots, while Chips would move to a new one. The new fall 1978 shows? Surely you remember David Cassidy, Man Undercover, The Eddie Capra Mysteries, Grandpa Goes to Washington, Sword of Justice, W.E.B., The Waverly Wonders, and Who's Watching the Kids? But there was one more produced Grizzly Adams episode remaining that had not aired. This was shown December 19, 1978, as a 90-minute special, appropriately following the animated special, The Bear Who Slept Through Christmas. Episode 24, Once Upon a Starry Night A decent snow is falling on Adams Mountain, and with Christmas fast approaching, Adams finds a modest pine tree for the cabin, preserving the roots so as not to kill it. Later, a traveling family has their wagon buried in an avalanche, with Adams saving the children. Uncle Ned is transporting young Debbie and Billy over the mountains to their parents' homestead, but they clearly can't make it this late in the winter, and they head to Adam's cabin. It's a full house when Mad Jack's old mountain man friend, Frostbite Foley, shows up. Meanwhile, parents Sam and Jenny have foolishly set out on foot crossing the mountains in the other direction to meet up with their children. Adams deduces this and sets out to locate them, but it's a difficult journey back to the cabin. When they get back, they are surprised by two Santa Clauses in the form of Jack and Foley. Adams has a special gift for Mad Jack, and everyone puts on a nativity play, with even Ben, number seven, Joshua the Raccoon, and Skunks Daniel and Mary Lou all participating. The guest star budget was maxed out on this one. Guest starring Ken Curtis and Jack Crustian returns to Adam's cabin, this time as Frostbite Foley. Special guest stars Don Galloway and Diane McBain, featuring Linda Arbazu and Stephen Robertson as children Debbie and Billy. Written by series writer Brian Russell and James Simmons, normally credited as a producer on Sun Productions. The children were non-professionals recruited from Orem, Utah. Curtis, of course, was well-known as Festus from Gunsmoke and played Uncle Ned to the two children. It must have seemed like a Christmas miracle when the series returned after seven months with one more outing, and this final entry of the series featured high production values. We see a completely new set piece in the form of a simple Creekside workshop Adams evidently built. Under its roof, he has a workbench, including a lathe powered by a water wheel. Adams is back in his previous outfit, but out in the weather, he wears a white hooded winter wrap with multicolored stripes. Mad Jack and Frostbite Foley perform the old mirror routine made popular by the Marx Brothers in I Love Lucy, 
but it originally appeared in Charlie Chaplin's 1916 film, Floorwalker. Friends by Tom Pace is again used to plenty of animal footage to pad out the running time, but instead of the regular series library music being used, this episode received its own original score by series composer Bob Summers. We also hear Ken Curtis sing, and he had quite the singing voice. Both Linda Arbazoo and Stephen Robertson expressed praise for Curtis when I spoke to them, and recalled that he was very pleasant and would sing and dance a jig on set. Linda, attending Orem Junior High at the time of filming, shared, My favorite person in the whole production was Ken Curtis, who played my uncle, and Festus on Gunsmoke. He was so respectful, kind, and appreciative of my acting talent. On the last day, I asked the cast and crew to sign my script like a school yearbook. It was a lot of fun. Stephen, in fifth grade at the time, recalled Curtis was gentle, kind, self-effacing, and a pure professional. Always had time for people. Lent a hand, even physically, when he saw the need. The best single example, to me, was how he behaved in the food line. If an actor wasn't at the head of the line initially, he was expected to go to the front, as a matter of course. Ken Curtis never did that. He took his place in the queue and wouldn't move to the front even when prompted. He was no better than a driver or a prop man. How he treated others on the set has stuck with me my whole life. I've often thought back on his example and have tried to emulate his behavior. Exceptionally accomplished, yet humble and kind. Were we all to take a page out of his book? Well, just imagine. Filming for this 90-minute episode was done near Park City, Utah in early March of 1978. Even though weather had forced the production to move from the Park City area first to Redoso, New Mexico, then to Payson, Arizona, the snowy weather conditions desired for filming had the crew move back to Utah for this finale. Linda recalled having to be shuttled from the makeup tent to the filming location via snowmobile. This episode received another one of those questionable VHS releases in 1982 and officially on DVD format in later years. But Grizzly Adams returned to television one more time, three years later in the TV movie The Capture of Grizzly Adams, airing February 21st, 1982. Monday night, a man wrongly accused of murder risks his freedom for the love of his daughter. On Stop Adventure, the capture of Grizzly Adams on NBC. When Grizzly Adams' sister and caretaker of his daughter Peg unexpectedly dies, both the local Sheriff Hawkins as well as no-gooder Frank Briggs realize word of her death will bring Adams down out of the mountains to see after Peg's welfare. When Adams arrives, he is chased and shot, escaping with Peg. Adams is captured, but Ben is presumably also shot in the process, and reluctantly the sheriff authorizes Briggs and his men to hunt him down. A jury trial is held, and for the first time we are given the full backstory of the murder Adams is accused of committing. Briggs had been a business partner with Pete Ferguson in a land company, Adams had a disagreement with Ferguson over water rights, and Ferguson was later found killed in his blacksmith shop with a hammer. 
Even though Ferguson had made a number of enemies, one witness identifies Adams as standing over Ferguson's body with the murder weapon. All seems lost when Adams is not only found guilty, but Briggs' men arrive and cruelly throw down a bear pelt in front of him, claiming Ben has been killed. However, a tornado interrupts the scheduled hanging, and the town is virtually destroyed. When Adams is trapped under rubble, an unharmed Ben shows up to free him, similar to the early days when he freed him from under the pine tree. Adams rescues a group of women and children trapped in the basement underneath the collapsed hotel. Unable to hang Adams after these events, the sheriff allows him and Peg to escape. Later, when it is revealed Adams saved the life of his son, the key witness comes clean and reveals Frank Briggs as the real murderer. When Briggs chases down Adams, this leads to a final showdown between them on a footbridge over some treacherous river rapids. Victorious and now free, Grizzly Adams and his daughter Peg begin the journey back to help rebuild the town, and the Tom Pace theme is played for a final time. Come on, Ben. Deep inside the forest is a door into another land. Here is Starring Dan Haggerty, Kim Darby, Noah Beery Jr., Keenan Wynn, June Lockhart, Chuck Connors, G.W. Bailey, and Sidney Penny as Peg. Bozo the Bear returns as Ben. Taft International, now owner of Sun Classic and their catalog, pulled out all the stops in casting this NBC TV movie special, casting several well-known names from film and TV westerns of yesteryear. Kim Darby from True Grit, June Lockhart from Lassie and Petticoat Junction, Chuck Connors from The Rifleman, Noah Beery Jr. from Riverboat, Hondo, and Doc Elliott and the prolific Keenan Wynn returns to Grizzly Adams. With Denver Pyle busy filming season four of The Dukes of Hazard, Wynn plays a similar character, seen briefly at the beginning and end of the film. In a press interview, Wynn made sure to point out he was not trying to replace Pyle as Mad Jack. Denver is completely different from myself, and I couldn't very well imitate Denver. I wouldn't. So what I'm doing is completely different from Denver, and that makes it a different part. So it's up to them. If they like what I'm doing, fine. If they don't, I'll take another job on something. Here, Adam's daughter Peg makes an appearance, a character not mentioned or seen since the 1974 film. Eight years old in the film as played by Lisa Jones, she appears to be perhaps 11 here as played by Sidney Penny and dialogue frames the time Adams has been away in the wilderness as a few years. This is perhaps somewhat incongruent with the length of time that could be deduced from Mad Jack's narration and other dialogue from early episodes. Also, I'll note that in the 1974 film, Adams did not have a wife, and was presumably a widower when he escaped into the wilderness and left Peg in the care of her aunt. This detail is easily missed both here and in the original film. Capture is also tonally quite different from episodes of the series and plays more like a standard innocent man accused type western, 
complete with requisite bad guy played by Chuck Connors, who commented, I play this character full out. People watching this will either say, boy, what a great heavy, or geez, did he go overboard with that. William Wyler once told me that if you get a role that lets you take a chance, take it. The telefilm also features several action and stunt sequences that utilized five stuntmen, including Sun regular Alan Gibbs. A tornado was simulated using two airboats as wind machines, which blew Fuller's Earth around the outdoor western set. Written by Arthur Heineman, it is somehow appropriate that the Grizzly Adams television saga's opening and closing chapters were both penned by the same person. Don Kiesler, primarily a commercial director but who had done some work on the series, was brought back to direct. Kiesler says he accidentally fell into film work when he was offered a job at Chicago's Wilding Pictures right out of his stint in the Air Force, but as a shipping clerk. When he was again with the armed forces, he was placed in the special section film branch of the Army. When he again returned to civilian life, he started directing TV commercials. Kiesler had been promised a regular spot as director on Grizzly Adams' third season, but the show did not get the desired renewal. Capture was filmed in September of 1981, again near Park City, Utah. The Miller Ranch in Wasatch County, as well as the studio's western set in the ghost town of Keatley, Utah, and the nearby Provo River were all used as filming locations. The ghost town and set are no more, as the location was submerged in 1993 when the Jordanelle Dam was finished, creating a reservoir fed by the Provo River. Grizzly Adams' cabin is never shown, as it had long since been removed from the meadow near the Smith-Morehouse Reservoir. Several other behind-the-scenes names returned for the TV movie, including producers Charles Sellier and James Conway, Don Perry and Bob Summers for music, and cinematographer Paul Hipp. The capture of Grizzly Adams was heavily rerun on the Disney Channel throughout the 1990s, released on VHS in 1998 by World Vision Home Video, and finally on DVD in 2013, with a re-release pending at time of this recording. Completists and fans of the series will find it worth a purchase. This was the final appearance of Dan Haggerty as Grizzly Adams. But there is, of course, much more to the story. Hi, I'm Brad Pitt. A few centuries ago, more than 100,000 grizzly bears roamed the lower 48 states. Today, only about 1,000 remain. That's because more than 98% of their natural habitat has been developed and lost. The Vital Ground Foundation is a nonprofit organization that identifies parcels of private land critical to the grizzly bear's survival and then protects that habitat through purchase or conservation agreements with owners. Vital Ground's dedication to preserving grizzly bear range goes well beyond saving a single species. When the land is wild enough for the grizzly, all other animals, plants, and fragile ecosystems are preserved as well. We can't turn back the clock and restore the pristine environment of centuries ago but we can protect the grizzly habitat that remains. Please take a moment right now and make your contribution to the Vital Ground Foundation. Thank you. To learn more about the Vital Ground Foundation, please visit vitalground.org.
next time on Forgotten TV. You've heard me discuss the films and series. Now go behind the scenes of the TV show featuring your favorite 70s mountain man in the conclusion of Forgotten TV's look at the life and times of Grizzly Adams. You'll hear the history of Charles Sellier and Sun Classic Pictures. They brought you Grizzly Adams and other wilderness films, but they were also known for another genre that might surprise you. Hear how they tantalized U.S. audiences with films on topics both unexplained and religious, such as The Mysterious Monsters and the incredibly popular In Search of Noah's Ark. Hear the unbelievable true story of the real Grizzly Adams, a 19th century bootmaker turned California mountain man and animal trapper who became one of the first American celebrities. Hear the account of the little-known first Grizzly Adams film, shot by Sun Classics animal handler Dick Robinson, and how it was scrapped by the studio to start over with Dan Haggerty, instigating a years-long legal battle over the Grizzly Adams brand. Go in-depth behind both the film and TV series. The casting of stars Dan Haggerty, Denver Pyle, and Don Shanks. The unique film distribution method that made Grizzly Adams so profitable. The audience concept testing systems Charles Sellier was obsessed with that decided everything from Grizzly Adams' costume to the types of animals shown and that resulted in some unusual choices. The show filming locations, the Grizzly Adams cabins and what happened to them. The story behind the music by Tom Pace, music producer Don Perry and composer Bob Summers. The multiple Grizzly Adams revival attempts and more. The product of three months of research, including behind-the-scenes information from writers Terrence McDonnell, David O'Malley, and director Sharon Miller. It's the topic that was just too big for one podcast. This may be the most incredible podcast you'll ever hear, but the facts that will be presented are true. The astonishing stories of Sun Classic Pictures, the real Grizzly Adams, and behind the scenes of the life and times of Grizzly Adams, coming soon to Forgotten TV. Did you know you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and get your own podcast feed? Exclusive content is found there, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental, over 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, which include full-length interviews with TV creators and supplementary information on show topics. Patreon supporters have already heard Grizzly Adams writer David O'Malley discuss Charles Sellier, a Grizzly Adams full episode guide and those Grizzly Adams TV guide articles. More Grizzly Adams supplementary content on the way. Won't you join us over on Patreon? The link is found right here in your podcast player. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and super supporter Joshua Driscoll. With producers Julio Capa, K.L. Young, Trevor Pearson, Mark Hadley, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by NBC, Sun Classic Pictures, Taft Broadcasting, Viacom, CBS DVD, Shout Factory, Timeless Media Group, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. 
The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams is the copyright and property of Sun Classic Pictures, Paramount Global, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2022 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and selected websites. While reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of that audio possible. James Grizzly, Siegfried Weninger, Rotten Tomatoes Classic Trailers, Tom Pace, Topic, TR3X Productions, Jay Parr, Chuck D's all-new Classic TV Clubhouse, Apotheon SAK, Memory Museum, Robert C. 2009, Santo Vaquero, Deft Mahatma, Sinrob One, For the Grizzly. Special thanks to Sharon Miller, Terrence McDonald, and David O'Malley, Running Bear Todd Tingey, Linda Arbazu, and Stephen Robertson, and Todd and Julie Swindell, caretakers of the Grizzly Adams brand. Additional research by Robert J. of Television Obscurities. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The books. The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams by Charles E. Sellier, Jr. When Hollywood Came to Utah by James D. Ark. And articles from the following periodicals. Broadcasting, various issues from 1976 to 1977. TV Guide, February 5, 1977 and June 11, 1977. Weekly World News, January 27, 1981 and numerous newspaper articles clipped from newspapers.com, as well as content from the following websites, grizzlyadams.com, AFI Catalog, Turner Classic Movies, Television Obscurities, the WGA Directory, the TV Ratings Guide, Active NorCal, Grunge, Find a Grave, Balloon Museum, Noble Savage World, Viewmaster Database, the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library, the Wilbur Wright Birthplace Museum. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV